even though they had Hall of Fame type of numbers, they don't belong in a Hall of Fame. I, I've heard the reasons of a hundred times. So it's not like if you're, you know, Billy Chappell for from the 1984 Detroit Tigers trying to talk about how baseball needs to be so pure, always was so pure, and needs to get out all of its cheaters. Like you're telling me something that I've never heard before. By the way, For the Love of the Game was the worst baseball movie in the history of baseball movies. What are we judging players by when it comes to the history of any respective sport? Is it how good of a role model they were? Is it how they best obeyed the rules within a game? Because I don't see rules changing, uh, you know, from from other sports. I don't see rules being uh, not twisted and used to anyone's advantage in any other sport. You can think of the three-second rules that applies to basketball. You know, you're you're in the paint for more than three seconds. Up to a certain point, it was okay. Now it became a rule. You talk about football. You know, the the rule, is it a catch? Is it not a catch? Is he inbounds? Is he out of bounds? Well, the players at that time played based off of the authenticity of the rules that were in there. Some rules change over time. So you don't go back in history and say, well, because the rules have changed, all of a sudden, we got to forget everybody that obeyed the rules that existed before. And here's where your hypocrisy comes when it comes to baseball. All of a sudden, amphetamines are not permitted. Players that test positive for amphetamines may not be subjected to the same type of penalties as the players that get caught using steroids, but they are punished. It's a punishable offense. And somebody that is consistently on amphetamines is not going to last in a game of Major League Baseball that long. They're going to get suspended. They're going to get suspended again. And there's going to be progressive discipline, just like if somebody were to use steroids in a year of 2020. Well, baseball history has honored some of the great players that ever played in, in the history of the game. They're all in their Hall of Fame. And they all used amphetamines. And I'm not saying go back and take Ted Williams and Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and Cal Ripken and Reggie Jackson and so on and so forth, all the players that benefited from the use of amphetamines. I don't believe that they should be taken out of the Hall of Fame, but the Hall of Fame needs to soften its stance a little bit. And I think over time it will, because I think some of the old guard when it comes to the baseball writers and those that are involved in the Veterans Committee, unfortunately, are starting to pass off and pass away. And you're getting younger, I'm not going to say more energetic, but more open-minded fans that are willing to look at the steroids era, for one, as just a time in baseball. And who were the best players during that time? And do you know for sure? That the likes of Pedro Martinez and Greg Maddox and Frank Thomas and Jim Tomey. Do you know for a fact that they didn't use steroids? Because you want more egg in your face than you already have. If one of those players used performance enhancing drugs and were to admit it somewhere along the line, the whole process would look even more embarrassing than it is. And how about Major League Baseball's stance on this? 
Bud Selig goes into baseball's Hall of Fame. And there isn't anybody that could have done a worse job in legislating steroids over the time that they were running rampant throughout the sport. Now, you could say as a fan that you overlooked it. But you know what? All your role is as a fan is just to watch the game. You're not going to be held responsible for players that are using steroids. And why is it that Jose Canseco, a washed-up old former baseball player that hit a ton of home runs, falls on some hard times, decides he's going to write a book called Juiced and start outing all the players that he played with that use performance-enhancing drugs. And he becomes the hero. He becomes the key whistleblower. Before that, nobody else had spoken up about the use of steroids in Major League Baseball. Now, you want to say it's similar to the Houston Astros of 2017? The players that were on that team that were cheating are not going to go out there and say anything about it. Every player that knew about the Astros cheating is probably just as responsible as those that were actually taking advantage and stealing signs. Now, once again, this is you want to know my stance on the Astros. The Astros, in my opinion, weren't doing anything that any other Major League Baseball team wasn't doing. Maybe they were more detailed in it. Maybe they were better at it. Maybe they had a, a formula that was unified amongst the players better than any other team had done it before. You can say any of that if you want, but variations of what the Houston Astros were doing in 2017 was being done throughout the sport of baseball way before that and way after. But when it comes to the use of steroids, we get on the players that were caught doing it, we get on the players that we believe used and certain players because they were nice guys. Like I said, Frank Thomas doing a new Genix commercial, you know, being on TBS in a, in a post game, big smile on his face. Oh, the women love him. Gets a free pass. Nobody ever asked him. Point blank. Hey, are you lying to us? Did you ever use steroids? Were you around players that use steroids? Where is Frank Thomas getting grilled when it comes to this discussion? And Greg Maddox, too, and Pedro Martinez. And listen, they may say no, 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 and you may not get anywhere with the discussion, but they played in the steroids era. And you got, once again, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Manny Ramirez and Rafael Palmeiro because there's different degrees of their either use of the drugs or their admittance of the use of the drugs, whether it went to court, whether it was more of a public thing, whether they were called out in Congress, whether they were pompous and arrogant and denied that they ever used it and then got caught using it, or tried to say that they can't speak English. I'm in agreement that a lot of these players looked pretty foolish in a way that they were either outed or they tried to get around what it is that they were likely doing. But it doesn't mean that their accomplishments don't exist. And the Baseball Hall of Fame continues to put itself in a very compromised position. Because you hear about the ballots, you know there's two more years left for Bonds and Clemens and other players like that. Do you want to throw in when you're, you know, if you're so against Barry Bonds getting in the Hall of Fame, 
You want to throw in the fact that 30 MLB teams colluded against Barry Bonds signing a free agent contract after the 2006 season? And what was the reason? That he was suspected to be using steroids. And I bet you it was led by the commissioner, Bud Selig. It was led by Jane Forbes Clark. It was led by those in the Baseball Hall of Fame that wanted Barry Bonds' career to end. And how come there's no discussion about this conspiracy, which was to end Barry Bonds' career? You want me to pull up his stats again for 2006? Because it's, it's embarrassing that a player with this type of season can be left in free agency unsigned. And it's not the first example of a player that was colluded against when Major League Baseball decided that this player's career was just going to end. That he was no longer going to play in the Major Leagues. We know about the collusion cases of the 1980s and how it impacted Al Oliver and Bob Horner and probably Steve Garvey. But there was no more collusion infested case made against a player playing like there was Barry Bonds after the 2006 season. He hits 276, has a 480 on base percentage, which means he's almost getting on base one out of every two times. A 565 slugging percentage, a 1.045 OPS, which, by the way, is about a half a point below what Barry Bonds' career OPS was. Hit 28 home runs, drove in 66 runs. You're telling me when you're talking about about half the league with the use of a designated hitter, an American League team could not have signed Barry Bonds for one year. The Giants, well, listen, they had him for 15 years. I'm not going to hold the Giants responsible if they decided that they wanted to move on, if they decided that this was going to be the last year for Barry Bonds in San Francisco. It's their right to do that. And, you know, that wouldn't be the first example of a great player being told that it's going to be his last year in a particular city. Remember Babe Ruth, 1934 Yankees? He goes and he plays with the Braves in 1935. The Yankees as an organization, made a decision in 1934 was going to be it for Babe Ruth. So I'm not even holding this against the Giants. But there's 29 other teams in baseball, and you tell me that they could not have used a player that gets on base one out of every two times, a player that's coming off of a 169 OPS plus, the OPS adjusted to with the ballpark factors, that's one of the biggest conspiracies, unfortunately, that nobody talks about. Nobody wants to get into why Barry Bonds all of a sudden stopped playing baseball. It was because Major League Baseball didn't want him to hit any more than 762 home runs. And where is Bud Selig to answer to that? Where are the owners of Major League Baseball teams that may have some information about this? They're not here to talk about it. It gets washed under the rug. 14 years, 13 years have gone by. Barry Bonds' career is over. 
And I apologize. His last year was 2007, not 2006. 2006, he, he, he had a worse season. He actually had a better year in 2007 than he did in 2006, his age 42 season. So you're telling me it makes sense that a player like this doesn't even get a contract offer? And I understand. You could say Barry Bonds was a bad dude. I don't know. I never met Barry Bonds, but you know what? You could say what you want to say about him. He, he wasn't a nice person. He was, you know, for himself. He was selfish. He was pervicacious in regards to staying and being stubborn and staying in his own way. That's fine. But Barry Bonds, when he left Major League Baseball in 2007, it wasn't his own choice. And it makes baseball look bad. And when we're looking at two more years left of eligibility for him to be in baseball's Hall of Fame, could he have played another three years? He played another three years and hit 20 home runs each year and all of a sudden has over 800 home runs. Those that are down on him for the use of steroids are going to be pissed. But once again, the numbers are the numbers. And as you go player by player, when you're talking about the ones that are held out when it comes to baseball's Hall of Fame, you think of the likes of Pete Rose and the likeliness that Pete Rose may never be reinstated while he is still here on this earth. Chulis Joe Jackson, who got a lifetime ban from Major League Baseball, and by the way, has been dead for over 70 years or almost 70 years. So shouldn't a lifetime ban end when a person's life ends? It's another thing to think about. And you got the players that use steroids. Mark McGuire, Raphael Palmera, two players that both came up in the same year of 1986. Looked nothing like they ended up looking over time. At some point made the decision to use performance-enhancing drugs. And McGuire is assumed to have used, and of course admitted on 60 Minutes that he used. Rafael Palmero to Congress as arrogantly and, you know, to the point about it, says he did not use steroids, period. A couple weeks later, gets suspended for the use of steroids. He basically lied to Congress. So the general public's not going to feel too good about Rafael Palmero. And all you have to do is listen to Will Clark's testimony of Rafael Palmero. They both went to the same college at Ole Miss. Will Clark blames Palmero for certain points of his career taking his job just because he was using steroids, and Will Clark wasn't. But once again, we use the human element when it comes to judging players who, as athletes, are just entertainers. And we pick some over others. And no matter what team you're a fan of, odds are you rooted for somebody that did steroids at some point. Did you turn your back completely to the fact that they were using steroids? Yankees fans and A-Rod? You know, Cardinals fans, Cubs fans, Giants fans. Like I said, whatever team it is that you root for, there's a player that you, you cheered for to use steroids. Did you have the balls to be able to say, I'm going to root for my team and not this player? 
I think that's part of the hypocrisy that spreads to the fans. Because when it is somebody you're not rooting for, it's easy to continue to not root for. It's easy to turn that not rooting for them into rooting against them. But you become a hypocrite when it's happening right in front of your face. And for just about every Major League Baseball fan, you've seen a player or two that have used steroids that has come out, has been part of your team. You, know, you say to Mets, well, what about Bartolo Colon? Marlon Bird was welcomed back after he was suspended. He ended up getting caught again using steroids. And I'm not asking, I'm not telling you how to feel about this. I'm telling you to be consistent. If you're going to call out players for the use of steroids and talk about how the Baseball Hall of Fame should hold out some of the best players to ever play because of what they did, and you're out there cheering that uniform just because it's your favorite team's uniform, you're the hypocrite. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com, and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of programs, such as by charge and admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So the next couple points we're going to bang right out, and then we'll call it a day. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by two ways, one passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So if you go on Wikipedia, you can find any type of list that you want. And I use it for a lot of baseball lists. One of the ones that I frequently look at is the list of the oldest living MLB players. And I'm happy to say that there's about 10% of them that I've actually done an interview with. And Eddie Robinson, George Elder, number one and two at this point as the oldest living MLB players. They've been on this show before. We've talked about some baseball before. But one of the things that always gets brought up, you got a player that is in their 40s, still playing baseball. And how far do they have to get to become the oldest Major League Baseball player to play in a game? And it's unfortunate that this list is as watered down as it is. Because there is a more definitive one through five than you would look up on Wikipedia or any sort of site that's going to chronologically curtail the oldest players that ever played in a Major League Baseball game. Because that list is going to start with Satchel Paige and go on to Charlie O'Leary, Nick Altrock, Minnie Minoso, and Jim O'Rourke. Now, those aren't the oldest MLB players to be active in Major League Baseball. Now, they are considered active because they came out of some sort of retirement to play and appear in a game. And Satchel Paige, when he pitched in a game for the Kansas City Athletics in 1965, threw three scoreless innings, got a nice ovation, and left. Yes, he appeared in that game. But he wasn't an active MLB player for the better part of 12 years. Now, you can talk about Satchel Paige as far as what, being one of the greatest starting pitchers in the history of baseball. And once I finish my top 100 offensive position player book, I'd like it to, I'd like the second book in a series to be the top starting pitchers of all time. And Satchel Paige is going to be in my top five. Spoiler alert. 
I'm looking at what he did in the Negro Leagues when the white, the Jim Crow whites weren't allowing him to compete in Major League Baseball against white players. But Satchel Paige, one thing that he doesn't deserve is the distinction of being the oldest Major League player to play in a game. Neither should Charlie O'Leary, who went from the years of 1913 and 1934 without appearing in a Major League game. Nick Altrock was a longtime coach for the Washington Senators. His career essentially ended in 1909 but made appearances in a game, whether it's as a pitcher or as a pinch hitter in 1912, 1915, 1918, 1919, 1924, 1929, 1931, and 1933. And listen, it's a great story. The Washington Great story. And Nick Altrock was a, a very good ambassador to the game, was for a while, you know, used for comedic relief, clown prince of baseball, but doesn't deserve the distinction of being the oldest player to play in the game. Minnie Minoso, another great story. Once again, you're talking about a player that was deprived the opportunity to play in Major League Baseball because of race. Had a very good career. I'm all for his Hall of Fame case. But his career ended in 1964. He came back in 1976 to appear in a game for the Chicago White Sox. Again, came back in 1980 to appear in a game for the Chicago White Sox. He wasn't active for 12 years. He really wasn't active for 16 years in spite of those couple appearances in two distinct seasons. Jim O'Rourke goes 11 years without playing in a Major League Baseball game from 1893 to 1904. So here's what I'm going to get into. The top five, or what should be the top five oldest MLB players to be active in Major League Baseball. And number one is going to be Jack Quinn, who pitched in a game at 50 years and six days with a relatively consistent career that went from 1909 to 1915, and then from 1915 to 1933. He was an active MLB player consistently from 15 to 33. Hoyt Wilhelm, 49 years and 350 days, from 1958 to 1972. His career started a little bit later, but played consistently Pitched consistently up until his career ended in 1972. Now, Jimmy Austin went from 1926 to 1929 without playing, and Arlie Latham went from 19, I'm sorry, 1899 to 199 without playing, so they don't count either. Number three is going to be Jamie Moyer, who went from 1986 to 1991, then 1993 to 2010, and then after having Tommy John surgery, came back in 2012 to pitch in the major leagues at 49 years and 191 days old. Huey Jennings was a manager for the Detroit Tigers, a player manager near the end of his career, and because of that, he took advantage and spent some time. His last game was played in 1903. Appeared again in seven, 
appeared again in 1909, and then appeared again in 1910, 11, and 12, and then appeared again in a game in 1918. That's not how it works. You know, you, you don't stop playing and all of a sudden put on a uniform, appear in a game, and then all of a sudden it's like you never left. Number four on my list is going to be Julio Franco, who played until 49 years and 25 days old. 1982 to 1994, 1996 to 2007, and he was consistent. He played every year, even 1995 when he played in, what was it, uh, Japan? He played overseas, played in Mexico. He deserves to be on this list as well. And number five would be Phil Necro, who played consistently from the years of 1964 to 1987 and played until he was 48 years and 179 days old. So what should read as the oldest active MLB players in Major League Baseball history should be Jack Quinn, Hoyt Wilhelm, Jamie Moyer, Julio Franco, Phil Negro. I want your input on this. What is your favorite lineup that you've ever seen in baseball? Could be now. Could be years ago. Could be your favorite team. Could be the favorite lineup of your favorite team. I'm going to go over a handful of them right now. And I look at the 1894 Philadelphia Phillies. And I've profiled this team a lot. I've spent a lot of time researching the 1894 baseball season, which I find so fascinating in so many different ways. And the most impressive thing about this Philadelphia team is that they had four players hit over 400 for them over the course of the season, including their entire starting outfield of Ed Delahanty, Sam Thompson, and Billy Hamilton. To me, this was the best lineup of all time. Billy Hamilton with a 403 batting average, 90 runs batted in, 100 stolen bases, a major league record, 198 runs scored, 225 hits leading off. Followed by Bill Holman, the second baseman, at 312. Didn't Homer scored, I'm sorry, scored 111 runs, drove in 69, stole 36 bases. Ed Delahanty, 405 batting average, drove in 133 runs, scored 148 runs, had 200 hits, 39 doubles, 19 triples. Sam Thompson, batting cleanup, playing left field, 415 batting average, 1.162 OPS. 13 homers, 149 runs batted in, 114 runs scored, and 187 base hits. Leif Cross playing third base. He drove in 132 runs, scored 128, hit 387. Jack Boyle playing first base. Jack Clements was the catcher. Joe Sullivan was the shortstop. And it's easy to forget about Tuck Turner who also hit 400 that season, drove in 84 runs as a utility player. So I look at other teams when it comes to my favorite lineups. And how about spending a second talking about the 1930 Philadelphia Phillies. They were managed, by the way, 
by Bert Schott, who obviously gains fame by being taken over for Leo DeRocher and uh, Clyde Sufork in 1947 with the Dodgers. And after DeRocher gets fired in 48, Schott comes back, manages a couple more seasons. But on a team that lost 102 games, they had an incredible lineup also. Fresco Thompson led off. Ordinary player, 282 average, drove in 46 runs, decent leadoff hitter. Lefty O'Doul, who, by the way, fourth highest cumulative batting average in the history of Major League Baseball, not in the Hall of Fame, batted second, hit 383. Chuck Klein hit 386, a 1.123 OPS. 40 home runs, 170 runs batted in, 158 runs scored, and 250 hits. Bat third. Pinky Whitney played third base, drove in 117 runs, scored 87, and hit 342. Don Hurst played first base, hit 327, drove in 78 runs. And then the rest of their lineup was Spud Davis, D Danny Southern, and Tommy Trevenow. Solid lineup. And a team, by the way, collectively hit 315. I think of the 1936 Yankees. And some people say, hey, the 1927 Yankees, Murderers Row, best lineup in the history of baseball. I think that that wasn't even the best lineup in the history of the New York Yankees. The 1936 Yankees, Jake Powell leading off playing right field. Tony Lazari batting second at second. Lou Gehrig batting third at first. Joe DiMaggio batting fourth in center field. Bill Dickey batting fifth behind the plate. George Selkirk batting sixth in left field. Red Rolf batting seventh at third base. And Frankie Crosetti batting eighth at shortstop. I think of a couple lineups from the 1980s. We're kind of different lineups. May not have had as much power in them. But I think of the 1986 Mets lineup, and this is the one that for the postseason, so I'll leave George Foster out. You can put George Foster in it, and you can say, wow, you know, George Foster batting sixth or seventh, it's pretty powerful. But I stick with Lenny Dykstra and Mookie Wilson. I got Dykstra leading off in center, Backman, Wally Backman playing second base, batting second, Keith Hernandez batting third at first, Gary Carter batting fourth behind the plate, Darrell Strawberry batting fifth in right field. Ray Knight batting sixth at third base. Mookie Wilson batting seventh in left. And Rafael Santana batting eighth at shortstop. You can slip Howard Johnson in there at shortstop. You want to beef it up a little bit. Foster and Johnson. That makes that lineup a lot more powerful. You want to add a DH. I don't care. Whatever you want to do. But I think of the 1985 St. Louis Cardinals. A lineup built off of speed. Vince Coleman, Ozzie Smith, Tommy Herr. Playing left field, shortstop at second base. Jack Clark at first, Willie McGee in center. Terry Pendleton at third base. Andy Van Slyke in right field. And Daryl Porter catching. It's a pretty strong lineup. And then I think of two lineups from the 1995 season, 10 years later, that I'll throw your way. One is the Cleveland Indians. Kenny Lofton in center. Carlos Baerga at second. Manny Ramirez in right, Jim Tomey at third, Albert Bell in left field, Eddie Murray at first base, Paul Sorrento designated hitter, Sandy Alomar catching Omar Vizquel at shortstop. 
And how about the 1995 Seattle Mariners? I got Joey Cora at second base. Alex Rodriguez, 19-year-old, didn't get in a ton of games. But imagine him as the number two hitter and shortstop in this lineup. Ken Griffey Jr. in center field. Edgar Martinez at designated hitter. Tino Martinez at first base. Jay Buhner in right field. Mike Blowers at third base. Dan Wilson catching. And Vince Coleman in left field. I'm going to pop this up on Twitter. We'll see if we can get a little bit of a thread going. It's going to be essentially quote this with your favorite all-time baseball lineup. A little bit of a recap of the show today. Baseball Hall of Fame, once again, the Hall of Exclusion. The only sport in any type of sport that excludes the equivalent of its all-time hits leader, its all-time home run leader, the players with the third and fourth highest batting average in Major League Baseball history, the four players who have hit the most single-season home runs in the history of the game, the player with the most MVPs, the player with the most Cy Youngs, and a ton of other accomplishments that you can think of that have gone by the wayside as far as the Baseball Hall of Fame calling out and giving credit to. I spent a couple minutes talking about the oldest active MLB players, and I think this list list should be modified. It should now be number one, Jack Quinn, number two, Hoyt Wilhelm, number three, Jamie Moyer, number four, Julio Franco, number five, Phil Necro. To not include players that were out of the game for a considerable amount of time, especially 10 or more years. Any more than one season you're removed from baseball, you, you shouldn't get credit for playing at such an older age. Any athlete that's in good shape could come out of retirement and appear in a game again. Last thing we spoke about, your favorite lineup. I want to hear them. Let's get at it. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by two ways. One passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.